And in the trafficking world, I frequently heard people say, survivors don't know what they need. We have to tell them what to do. And to that I say, if someone has been harmed so much that they've lost the ability to really know what they need, and I can relate to that again, high trauma background myself, if you've lost the ability to even tell what you need, then my job as a provider isn't to tell you what I think you need, using my own definition of safety and health and recovery. My job is to help you relearn how to feel into yourself, into your heart and into your being, and start figuring out again for yourself what you might need. It's not my job to fix you. It's my job to help you reconnect with that part of you that knows what you need. That was Christy Croft, and this is the second half of Christy, and she's talking this time about trauma and how we can best work with trauma survivors. You know the why human trafficking work is needed, to fight for the freedom of modern-day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. I know that you also um, are very involved in helping people understand how to best work with uh, high, highly traumatized clients. And, you know, we're talking about complex trauma, not, you know, there's, there's trauma and then there's complex trauma and people that have been traumatized perhaps over a period of time, uh, numerous times. And so you got, you actually use the ACE score as part of it. So can you explain to people what ACE means? Sure. So that's the adverse childhood experiences. And that is where someone did a study, and I'm going to get to meet one of the co-principal investigators next month, and I'm fangirling and extremely giddy. Oh, yeah, but. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I loved him too. Yes. Oh, I can't wait. Um, but they did a study where they found that there were uh, of people who had a certain number of these adverse childhood experiences that they identified, and there's 10 of them. And they include things like having an incarcerated parent in experiencing childhood neglect, experiencing childhood physical abuse, experiencing sexual abuse, uh, witnessing domestic violence in the home, someone with a substance use disorder in the home. There's 10, 10 of these experiences that you may have had as a child. And what they found is that the higher your ACE score, the number of them you experienced in your childhood, the poorer your outcomes are. And these poor outcomes are across a variety of um, outcomes to everything from higher chance of heart disease, more uh, greater likelihood that you'll have a substance use disorder yourself, um, mm -hmm. poor emotional health, depression, suicidality, all of these are impacted things from physical physical diseases and illnesses to psychological disorders, you have a higher risk of them the higher your ACE score is. An ACE score of four or higher is uh, considered a high ACE score. And this is somewhere where, again, having been doing this work and in this field for a long time, 
I noticed as someone who has a super high ACE score myself that a lot of the people doing the work do not have a super high ACE score. Mm -hmm. And it, it made me wonder if you have a low ACE score as a provider and you're working with people who have a very high ACE score, you might struggle at first to really understand their experiences and that might lead you to inadvertently other the people you're trying to support. Mm -hmm. uh, I've heard providers who talk about survivors of any violence, but especially those survivors of human trafficking who have really high and complex trauma. And it almost sounds like they're talking about a zoo animal. They're mm -hmm. like, you know, survivors are more likely to do this thing and they do this loyalty testing and they're describing the behaviors as if they're described, like narrating a National Geographic special. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm like, you know, they also cook their dinner and want to be loved and have that same human need to feel accepted that you Absolutely. have. And so there's opportunities to connect there that we lose when we get so focused on trauma, 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 weird behavior that we don't understand, it, it just kind of like we end up constructing survivors of trafficking mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as if they are so unlike us. And then it causes the services that we try to give to them to feel less relevant and welcoming to them. And so one of the activities I love doing when I do trainings is I go through these areas that trauma impacts in our life. Um, whether it's behavioral, emotional, psychological, what are, you know, what are these different areas? And I mention, I put up on my slide, the frequent things that we hear mentioned as impacts. So maybe a psychological impact from trauma might be um, dissociation or struggling with depression. But I go through each of these areas and I have providers in the room come up with a list of things that that person might have learned because of their trauma that maybe you don't learn if you haven't experienced that trauma. So for each of these negatives around trauma, we can acknowledge trauma is not good. It's not a blessing that anyone experienced trauma. However, that person sitting in front of you might have strengths that you don't have that they learned as part of their recovery from their trauma. And when yes. you start to learn to see that human in front of you as having strengths and gifts that you haven't had that develop in yourself out of necessity, mm -hmm. then you can start to treat them more as an, as an equal and as a partner in how you're going to support them instead of thinking they're someone you need to fix or make all their decisions for. Um, and in trafficking, specifically one of the areas I see that come up a lot is when we talk about the empowerment model, which is how sexual violence um, agencies do their work, which is that we don't tell survivors what to do in rape crisis work. We help empower them to figure out what they need and how we can help them get those needs met, point them towards resources. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons we have to re really examine why we might go into this type of helping field. You know, is it because we need to feel in control? Is it because we need to have people need us? Is it because we need to control other people and tell them what to do? We really have to examine. And I love, you know, just having people do the five whys. You know, why am I involved in this effort? And then whatever that answer is, why to that answer? And whatever that answer is, why again? Because that gets you down to the heart of why you want to do this work. And if it's an ugly answer, 
that's okay because you can work on yourself to, you know, lift yourself to a better place before you even continue or begin this work with other people. And I think that the ACE um, study is wonderful. They've done it with thousands, thousands of people uh, they did this research with. And the ACE study, I believe, is free. You can download it. 10 questions. We use it on our, with our survivors, and our survivors have an average score across them of six. So mm-hmm. we have some a little higher, some a little lower, but an average score of six, which, is, which tells us that we need to be doing some intensive, some comprehensive, and some flexible type of traditional work and non-traditional work uh, with people. Mm-hmm. So, Christy, what can you share with us? Um, you're a survivor, what you're a survivor of, and how long ago sure. perhaps that was? Yeah, so I, the way that I frame it is I'm, I'm definitely a survivor of child sexual abuse, sexual assault as an adult, intimate partner violence, and I have lived experience in the sex trade, and some of that was entirely consensual. And some of it was coerced and trafficked, and a whole lot of it was in this gray area that I talk about a lot when I train, that gray area where you don't have options and you're doing what you have to survive and feed yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think my own experiences as someone with an A score of eight <laughs> around wow. all of that and looking at why do I do this work and what do I want to, to bring into my work, what insights do I have to share, um, I think the one thing I keep turning to is resilience and not in terms of resilience, just as some inherent intrinsic thing that makes some people bounce back faster than others, but looking at these broader ideas of resilience and some of them include having access to uh, supportive adults in your life and communities. There are things that we can do at the community and society level that build resilience for people in communities and keeping in mind that that A score is not a life sentence. This is not a life sentence of doom that for the rest of your life, you may always have to navigate how that trauma impacts you in your personal life and in your work, but it doesn't mean that you're forever doomed to poor outcomes, even though you might be statistically more likely to Mm -hmm. have to be really thoughtful about some of them. Exactly. Um, I mean, I totally agree. I think being how you put it real thoughtful about things is I'm a, I'm a survivor of domestic violence myself. Uh, haven't been in a a violent situation, a violent relationship twice. And so I already know, for instance, if I'm also at risk of diabetes. So having both that, both those information, um, I can look, you know, and see far off, that there's a train that's coming on the track, a diabetic train. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get diabetes, perhaps. So I need to eat as healthy as possible so that I can slow that train down to a crawl so maybe that train never reaches me. And the same thing with domestic violence. I can't go into a room because of my experience, look across the crowded room, our eyes meet, and we fall in love. I can't do it that way. I have to right. use my brain and I have to meet someone. Well, I can't because I'm, I'm already in a relationship, but if I were single, I can't just walk in a room, our eyes meet and fall in love. Because if there's 50 guys in the room, I'm probably going to pick 
the one who's going to be my third abuser. So I have to actually use, use tools, use my brain along with my heart. I just have to adapt so that my life stays healthy. I mean, that's it. I'm not doomed to forever be in terrible relationships. I just have to implement the tools that I learned to use, correct? And that's right. And the more we learn how to do that without attaching a negative association to it, the easier and more gentle we can be with ourselves. And that's something I try to tell people all the time is it's okay to have boundaries that come from your trauma. It's still your boundary. It's still something you need to do to keep yourself healthy. And you don't have to say, oh, if only I could move past my trauma, I would never have to think critically about who I'm attracted to again. (laughs) And you don't have to say, oh, if only I didn't have my trauma, then... I could handle the uncertainty of feeling like my boss is disappointed in me. It's okay to be like, I have trauma, and this is a thing that happens to me that I experience internally because of that trauma, and I'm not going to judge myself or be angry at myself about it, but I am going to be aware of how it impacts my choices and my decisions and the way I navigate relationships that could include friendships or romantic relationships or work relationships. This is something that can impact the way I perceive the world around me and the media that I consume. It's always present. Someone asked me recently when I said I was going to be doing a speaking engagement, are you speaking as a survivor? And like every time I open my mouth, I'm speaking as a survivor, whether (laughs) I am or not, (laughs) because I am a survivor. I can't talk without it being coming out of the mouth. Of a survivor, but the fact is because of my professional training and the hundreds of survivors I've worked with over the years, I feel a a sense of obligation to recognize that my personal experience as a survivor is not the only narrative out there, and any time I open my mouth to speak as a survivor, I try to be aware that I have a thousand survivors behind me that I'm also wanting to hold voice for. I don't like thinking of the idea of the voice of the voiceless because most people who we think of as voiceless are speaking. We're just not listening. Mm -hmm. But I do like carrying their voices forward into spaces that they might not have access to as often as I can. Yes, that... That's, I think, an aha moment. The the voice of the voiceless. No, they're speaking. We're just not listening. I love that. So, Christy, how do you go out and do all this work and be a survivor with trauma. I mean, how, how are you able to do that? How do you engage in your own self-care? Well, we'll start by pointing out that I do it with varying degrees of success, and that's something I also learned to be gentle with myself about. Um, yes. But I have a really good family and uh, a wonderful partner and amazing friends who I'm close to who uh, hold space for me to be my entire whole imperfect self um, so that I can say things like, this is absurd, it's probably coming from my trauma, but I'm worried about the following and not get judged for it. Mm-hmm. I also put a lot of time into my self-care outside of work. Um, I dance, I do ecstatic dance. I'm a fire performer in my free time. Um, so if working in this field has ever made you want to set things on fire and throw it around, that's an actual possibility. <laughs> yeah, um, that sounds pretty good. It's a real thing you can do. Uh, I do a lot of reading. I watch trash TV. Uh, I'm not going to apologize for it. No, don't. And then in my, <laughs> it's wonderful. It's a good diversion. And then my agency, I'm very blessed 
to have a agency I work for that prioritizes organizational self-care, which means that even when I'm in my office, the way we do things is different because our agency prioritizes hiring survivors and people with lived experience, which means that we need to make sure we have a trauma-informed workplace. So my office is visually somewhere I want to be. I have rope light and Christmas lights and plants growing around and pictures of people I love and reminders, poems I like and uh, reminders of who I want to be in this work. And then I have comforts in my office. I have a fuzzy blanket for when it's cool or I just want a blanket around me. I have foot rollers under my desk. Um, yes, I love all of that. It's like you, yeah. you are really allowed to be your whole self. And I love that. And I'm dying to know what trash TV do you watch? Because I'll tell you what I watch. <laughs> but go ahead. <laughs> what do you, so mine, it depends on the day. But a friend recently got me into this absurd reality show called Forged with Fire. Where oh. um, metalsmiths compete to make weapons. <laughs> under, you know, it's the same standard as any reality TV where there's a time limit and limited materials to construct it out of and they build swords and axes and weird battle implements. Oh, that's um, so that cool. I love yeah, that. Well, mine is 90 Day Fiance. Um, there's so much drama and backstabbing and talking and <laughs> it's just, I love it. It's wonderful. And I feel... Those things are very healthy when you yes. come from a background of, I come from a background of a lot of drama. And so mm-hmm. to have a healthy life, you know, I don't want to be in a domestic violence situation. I don't want to have best girlfriends that are bringing drama, but I need a little drama because that's just been my life script. And if okay. I can get some drama on television, but, but turn all of those people off, when I, when I want to have, you know, uh, a healthy environment, <laughs> you know, I think Absolutely. that's, that's a part of my prescription. That that's part of my, um, my health plan. Absolutely. So, yeah. So what do you do? What, what do you think is some of the, the best things about what you do and, and what still some of the frustration that you face? Oh, Well, it's kind of interesting. I used to do direct services. I did direct service for a decade, and in that, you get to sit in front of the survivor and talk to them. Um, And I've lost that, but I've I've found that some of the best things I get are when we have a little success, when I um, was able to connect, uh, since we talked about this earlier, a trans survivor recently to somewhere safe to stay, and now this person has somewhere that's going to be uh, able to keep them for up to a year as long as it's working out. They'll have housing while they rebuild their life. Seeing those successes, sometimes I start crying when I hear them because Mm -hmm. it's so overwhelming to me that I was able to connect someone. Or when I write something and make a recommendation for policy at the state level and it gets adopted and I'm able to see how even though I'm not working directly with that survivor, something I put into practice is going to help survivors across the state. I love that. The most frustrating pieces to me are gaps, I'm going to be honest, because since I do training in technical assistance, direct service providers aren't calling me with every survivor that's easy for them to find services for. So most of the calls I get from providers 
are the really hard cases where there's, you know, sometimes they call and I might have a reference or a referral for them, but frequently they call with a gap and I'm like, yeah, that's actually a gap, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I can't, I can't fix it, you know. And that, that's the hardest part is realizing how many gaps there are mm-hmm. that make it hard for us to help people who've come to us and told us they want help and to not have what we need in place to serve them. And that's another thing that really made the LGBTQ survivors um, complexity an issue for me is safe housing is a big need. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm so thankful that you're in North Carolina and I'm so thankful that you're doing the work. And I know that you're trying to stand in that gap and trying to close those gaps and we should all be very thankful that you're on the planet. I know I am. So Thank I you. hope you will continue the excellent, excellent work that you do. I hope you'll continue the, the therapies that you love, the dance, the trash television. Mm-hmm. It's all good. <laughs> because if good it's stuff. producing this result, then that's what we want. <laughs> so... Thank you so much, Christy. And can you tell me where people can get in touch with you or any, any programs or presentations that you might be doing, their books that you have, or anything that you want people to know? Or can they just get in touch with you for more information? And where can they do that? They can absolutely reach out to me through NCCASA, so nccasa.org. And so my email is Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-Y, at nccasa.org, and I'm going to be presenting in November at the Safe Coalition for Human Rights Global Trafficking's uh, conference in just outside of Chicago. So I'll be there as well. Excellent. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.